From New York City, this is Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penzener. Here we discuss topics related to your money, markets, and issues near and far from personal finance. You can always reach me at mark.penzener at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Today's episode is all about philanthropy, and I want to make this as relevant as I can to you, whether you just donate to charity, you're more involved than you sit on a board or a committee, or you work inside the industry. To do that, I've pulled together a panel of experts. Let me welcome Hillel Hyman, who's the CFO of the Marlene Myers and JCC Manhattan. Hillel's been at the JCC for 16 years, and prior to that was at Deloitte & Touche. Welcome, Hillel. Thank you. Good to be here. Peter Dunn is the president and CEO of the Central New York Community Foundation. He's been at that role since 2008. Prior to this, Peter worked at the California Community Foundation. Welcome, Peter. Thanks, Mark. And last but not least is Seth Buckwald. Seth is one of the senior members of the philanthropy team at Alliance Bernstein. He's been at the firm 22 years, and prior to Bernstein, Seth was the Northeast Regional Director for APAC. Seth, thanks for joining. Thank you. I've put you three together because you come from different perspectives and geographies. Peter from the Community Foundation side in upstate. Hillel, inside an organization and in New York City. And Seth comes at it from the donor and investment manager perspective and travels fairly extensively. So, so given that, I guess my first question for all of you, but I'll start with Peter, is, Peter, what do you see as the, the hot topic in the industry today? Oh, there's a lot of different layers to that. Um, for a lot of nonprofits, there's the new tax law, uh, especially as it impacts New York State individuals and uh, the decline in the number of people who will be itemizing. Um, as a foundation who cares about community impact and the nonprofits we work with, um, there are a lot of systemic changes in how nonprofits are being funded, and so that has a direct impact on the quality of life and people in the area. And so there are a bunch of different layers and issues, whether you're talking about from the donor perspective or from the nonprofit community-facing perspective. And Halal, same thing for you. What do you think the hot button or, or biggest challenges are on the organization side? I mean, I'm going to tell you, I think just in the way we do our planning, I think, you know, Peter kind of, you know, hit it on the nail. And I think we're going to have to really see how things play out. Um, I think more on the, I'm less concerned uh, on the uh, very large uh, donor with great capacity than I am with the lower tier or middle uh, tier donor who, uh, you know, does uh, or has taken uh, advantage of the itemized deductions and now is saying, hey, look, standards, uh, you know, much easier. It falls in with what I need. Um, but I think for the larger donors, we may need a few years to, you know, see how that plays out because a lot of these people have done their uh, short to midterm to even long-term planning. So I think we may have to actually wait a few years to see how that actually, uh, you know, ends up happening. So, Peter, I want to go back to you. You're, you work at a community foundation. Before we get into the weeds of, of donors and donations, it may be helpful for some of the listeners to just understand what a community foundation does and what it provides. So community foundations have been around for about 100 years. And um, initially, we were created out of bank trust companies. We are an aggregation of charitable trusts that um, the banks had, and they brought in um, an outside community board to oversee the charitable purposes of those trusts. So we have a, a long history that goes way back to really um, how to keep legacies that people have left current with changing times. From that, community foundations have grown significantly. We're one of the fastest growing parts of philanthropy. And that's driven by a couple of things. One, has uh, through the transfer of wealth that 
comes through bequests. Community foundations are naturally a place where many different types of endowments, uh, bequests for different sorts of charitable purposes that mirror an individual's charitable intent are held and managed uh, collectively for the benefit of a given ge geographic community. And then um, donor-advised funds, which have been um, around for many decades, um, a vehicle for people to use as an alternative to a private foundation to manage their philanthropy from year to year. Uh, in the community foundation context, we think um, about geography. We're place-based, and we're very interested in helping improve the quality of life in a given community. So for this community foundation in Syracuse, we're interested in engaging donors, whether it is through legacy planning to create permanent charitable capital for the benefit of the community that reflects that donor's story and interests, and we manage that and make grants in the community in accordance with those wishes, or it's to engage people currently in their philanthropy to make sure that people are giving more, giving well, and more efficiently, and then using the donor advice fund as that tool. Uh, Seth, Seth, let me turn to you. Peter's talking about donor-advised funds and private foundations. Can I ask you to, to talk about what you see as the pros and cons to donor-advised funds and private foundations, and maybe even more broadly, just what those are? Right. So a private foundation um, is an entity that's created generally you know, with several million dollars for a family that wants to have a legacy of, of uh of philanthropic giving. Um, the private foundation existed before the donor advised fund and the donor advised fund does most of what a, a, a private foundation would do. Uh, and I would say that the donor advised fund for the average quote unquote donor uh, has many advantages and is a simpler way to approach creating this uh, fund that, you know, you have some control over. So the big, the big difference right from the start is the donor advised fund does not belong to the donor. He makes an irrevocable contribution to an organization that serves as the trustee, so to speak, of the donor advised fund. And he and his family members are able to make recommendations that have to be approved uh, for distributions to the charities of their choice. In practice, there almost is a rarity where even though these donations, uh, these contributions to um, or grants, if you will, uh, that are made to outside organizations have to be approved by the, the boards of the the, the trustee, um, they almost rarely are they going to be rejected. Uh, similarly, uh, various donor advice funds allow the donors to make recommendations for asset allocation, how they want that money invested. So what you get is with a donor advice fund, you make a one-time gift into this fund. Um, you have the right to make as many distributions per year as you would like. Depending on the institution that is the trustee, there's a lot of service around it. You'll get and they'll have access to a website where you can see all of the contributions you've made and a record of um, even performance of what's going on with their investments, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, some of the other advantages of a donor-advised fund are that, number one, uh, with a private foundation, you have to file a tax return each year, and the um, regulations in and around that private foundation are much more, much more rigorous and strict, strictly enforced than they would be a donor-advised fund. Uh, with a private foundation, you have to make 5% contribution distribution each year. Otherwise, you're subject to a tax. With a donor-advised fund, there is no minimum distribution, although that, that can vary from organization to organization. And another thing donors like about the donor-advised fund is that they're, in fact, private. You're, you, you can remain completely anonymous. Uh, and so, so whereas with a, private with, a, with a private foundation, because you're filing um, the 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 board and sometimes the assets 
of that foundation are actually subject to public scrutiny. So that you might ask, why would somebody do with a private foundation and not a donor-advised fund? And that would be, I would think, um, because you'd want complete control over that foundation and its assets uh, and, and have ultimate decision-making power, complete total decision-making power over those assets. And you might want to, you know, with a private foundation, you might want to involve the, your family members in making these decisions. Although donor-advised funds, you can do the same. So it is a, in, a, in my view anyway, it's a much simpler process to get a donor-advised fund, but for the donor who wants complete control, he should probably consider a private foundation. Seth, you know, we're, oh, go, go ahead, hello. I just had a question, because I always like to benchmark our experience at the JCC uh, with what's going out there in the marketplace. So I think, you know, you said uh, earlier about uh, private foundations, and often those are set up with uh, individuals or families that have uh, a few million or more uh, to put to work. Is it your experience that uh, lower to mid-tier uh, donors um, gravitate more to the donor-advised funds um, and that you don't see that uh, as much uh, with the larger donors? Or, you know, what, what is that trend? I'm curious. Yeah, I'd say, well, that's a very good question. So originally I would have said, you know, in the last 20 years there's been a major shift um, uh, towards donor-advised funds, simply because they're, they're less expensive and they're less complicated to operate, and there are more organizations that offer a tremendous amount of services in and around the donor-advised fund. They remove a lot of the responsibilities from managing a foundation and the cost. The, you know, the organizations will typically charge between 1% and 2%, including the management charge to manage a donor-advised fund, whereas if I have a foundation, I have to file a return Sometimes I have to pay staff. All the bookkeeping has to be done by me uh, or, you know, or I'm responsible for it. So it's a much simpler thing. So what starts to happen is with organizations like Fidelity uh, and Vanguard and some of the major organizations out there offering donor-advised funds, there's much more publicity about it. And donors of all sizes are, va are gravitating for, to the donor-advised fund. I would not underestimate the importance. Now, depends on how much notoriety or fame I would like with my family foundation. But a lot of people, a lot of donors are attracted to the fact that they remain anonymous. With a private foundation, they may not. So it kind of simplifies their lives in some respects. But if, you know, if you're something like the Ford Foundation that has a strong mission and wants everybody to know about the, the charitable uh, involvement of the family, then, you know, a foundation has its attractiveness. Hey, Peter, let me... Yeah, Peter, I was going to jump you in there. How does a community foundation help with, in this process? In my experience, um, number one, we're seeing a trend about people shutting down private foundations. Um, they're concerned about what happens to the foundation when the next generation, the next generation may not have an interest that uh, aligns right. with the founding generations. They may have a particular place-based commitment that isn't shared by other folks in the family. Um, it goes on and on. We've had more than a dozen private foundations merge into us as funds over the last several years, and that trend continues. And that tends to be, you know, foundations less than 10 million um, where there's a, a generational issue that's um, at play. So that's number one. Number two, I'm seeing a trend with larger donor-advised funds. Um, when I came here uh, 11 years ago, we didn't have a single donor-advised fund that uh, was in the eight figures. Um, we had several in the seven figures. Now we have multiple eight-figure donor-advised funds. So um, folks who before might have been thought as natural private foundation candidates are now um, creating much larger funds, again, because they see the same um, benefits that, uh, that were mentioned previously. Um, 
The community foundation context is distinct <clears throat> because we're place-based. That you know, we have a focus on a particular geographic area. Um, we bring to bear particular expertise and knowledge about the nonprofit community as well as issues in a given place. Um, and that is fundamentally the, the distinctiveness of the community foundation because we're also a grant maker in our own right. We have our own unrestricted funds, our own um, funds for different fields of interest and whatnot. So we get to know nonprofits in a way that most donors would never be able to. And for the donor who has uh, an interest in that expertise, the relationship with the community foundation can be particularly powerful. And then lastly, I'd say that there's um, a connection with people who are also doing estate planning and I'm using the donor advised fund as a vehicle for um, personal giving now, but in anticipation of a larger commitment that will come through their estates. We see you know, we have dozens and dozens of people who we have that relationship with where their legacy will be local. And for them, um, it's a confidence-building exercise to work with us during their lifetime, and that results in a much larger gift later on. But again, it's all in the place-based context. I think that's hey, a really you, important aspect. Peter, you bring up the notion of um, a planned gift or an estate gift. I'm curious of all your thoughts. Maybe, maybe Hillel, I'll direct this to you. Is there a right time for a donor to reach out to an organization or, or maybe even a community foundation to say, hey, I'm thinking about a planned gift or I've put a gift in my will or my estate or through a trust? Is there a right or wrong time for them to, to talk to an organization about that? And, and is there a pro to come out and saying that now while they're alive before that happens? So, I mean, I would say, and uh, Peter probably has a little more experience uh, in this arena, but uh, there's such sophisticated uh, tax planning and uh, legacy gifts planning that's going on that people could approach us at 35 or 40 years old and say, I want to do this insurance XYZ type of uh, transaction with you that you'll see you, and reap the benefits uh, 30, 40 years down the road versus someone who might come to you when you know, they're 70 and might want to do a, a, a straight bequest or, or something that has a uh, shorter time duration. So we're pretty early on in uh, endowments, legacy gifts, um, but our experience, especially getting into in the last few years, is that I'm going to say there's not one specific age that makes it right or wrong. Uh, Peter, I'm curious, what's, what's your experience? We see a range of situations. Um, you know, we have had large gifts come to us from people we never met um, who were recommended uh, to us by their advisors over time. And, um, you know, I, I've seen that over and over again where we never had the benefit of a relationship to look in you know, talk to the person and understand their, their motivations and interests. We've had lots of others where um, we've had an ongoing relationship, um, sometimes a, a couple decades long. For us, I would say, as kind of the community trustee of all these legacies, um, we benefit by having the donor's story. And we've been working a lot around the notion of storytelling and using those mechanisms as a way to tease out uh, donors' interests and motivations, their history of civic engagement uh, and engagement with nonprofits in the community, why they were motivated to give and, and why around what issues. And having that enables us to really understand um, both why they gave to us, why they supported the community, and the types of um, grantees that would be appropriate uh, for us to support from the fund that they create. So we benefit from a relationship, but we don't always have it. Um, but people self-select on how they want to engage with us. So we've been talking a bunch, I think, from the donor perspective. I, I want to pivot this to people who are 
either thinking about getting involved directly with an organization or already sit on boards or committees of, of nonprofit organizations. Halel, is there something one should think about if they want to give back and get involved in an organization? Should they be thinking about time commitment? Do they need to have a specific area of expertise? Um, how, how do you find the right people to, to become active volunteers in an organization? So, you know, first off, I think it's very important uh, that the people that uh, are in your orbit and that you're looking to bring even closer to yourself share your vision. Uh, and vision could uh, take on many forms, but you want to first make sure that uh, you, know, you and the donor uh, are in sync. And I think that's extremely important. And uh, we don't believe money's a bad thing. We think it's a good thing. Um, the next level for us is uh, we want to engage people who bring a skill set that's going to complement that of our staffs. So if we're a little light uh, in being able to analyze uh, digital technology, regular technology, or construction, or space analysis, or investments, we want those board members who are not going to only share our vision, but be able to work side-by-side -side, uh, with the staff here at the JCC. And that actually, for as long as I've been here, that's been something very special. Uh, the, board and the staff working together. Uh, once you have those two components, I think a lot of things could, you know, follow from that. Um, but that's, I mean, uh, above all, I think those are the two things that, that we look for. But that's interesting, right? Because if I'm thinking about getting involved in the JCC, you were saying someone's skill set can be construction or they're an architect and, and you wouldn't jump out and say, oh, construction would be useful to a nonprofit or a JCC. But that may be exactly the skill set that an organization needs from a volunteer. So, so for a JCC, for instance, and again, every nonprofit uh, is going to have a different story. But for those uh, entities, for instance, that you know want to really hit digital hard uh, and have you know marketing and a tech department, but want to take it to the next level, they may actively look for somebody. And New York City uh, has a lot of you know has a lot of talent. Um, look for somebody who's considered uh, very high end in that space. Uh, if we're looking to expand or reconfigure spaces or perhaps, you know, perhaps go even to a different location within Manhattan, having someone with the skill set of construction or uh, real estate management, uh, that brings us another lens internally uh, to help us analyze what's going on in the landscape. So you know, that's, how, that's how we look at it, and it depends what we're specifically looking in at that time. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be people that have generic or, or general skill sets, um, you know, we, we look for wisdom and, and how we partner. We look for people that may be uh, at the forefront of social responsibility. And though we have programmers in that area, bringing someone who really knows that area well from an internal standpoint just makes, it that, makes us that much better. Hey, Seth, you spend a lot of time on the investment side talking to boards and investment committees about the assets that a nonprofit organization has. Can you think of some best practices you, you've seen from organizations or when you worked at APAC for the right people on an investment committee who have to act as a fiduciary for the organization? Yeah, I mean, this is a great challenge that most organizations face because um, oftentimes what happens is that, you know, you're, you're likely going to attract people you think are connected to the financial world and somehow will bring those skills to your investment committee and act in a way that is consistent with the goals and, uh, and benefits of whatever the pool of assets are, you know, the foundation or the endowment's assets are. And in fact, what happens, unfortunately, many times 
these investors won't necessarily do what they, they think is best because they're overly concerned about risk. Uh, and, and oftentimes that leads them to make the wrong decision. Um, and I would, and I advise and talk to these investment committees all the time and saying that you've got to just focus on as dispassionately as you possibly can, the goals and objectives of the, of the organization and its assets, and then build an asset allocation that makes sense. Not saying without regard to risk, but, you know, commensurate with the type of risk, uh, liquidity, and cash flow that the organization might need. Um, otherwise, you know, you're, you're not really serving them as best as you might. And this is, a, this is a, unfortunately, a mistake we see time and time again. Uh, the other thing uh, that it leads or, uh, board members to do, which is probably the biggest problem, is that in times of big distress, great distress, because of this overarching concern, more more people than well, more boards than not, unfortunately, will make that decision. Well, maybe I should just get out, right? And of course, that has. A and, and you're talking about getting out and selling their their portfolios right. to go to cash. Exactly right, and that and they'll always invariably do this at the wrong time, right? And they'll do this during periods of stress when things are down. You know, they will sell high, sell low, actually, and then ultimately end up buying back in high. This idea of avoiding um, market timing is something that should be sacrosanct because the organization itself is going to have to continue its spending to continue its important work on whatever mission they may have. And going to cash at a time when you, you, you're still going to need to spend your 5% over time really will decimate or could potentially decimate the, the endowment. So think about the experience in 2008 and I have a 5% spending policy. If, in fact, you know, I sold out at the end of 2008 and I'm down 30%, I've lost the 30% plus the five that I spent. The following year, I'm in cash, so I basically earn nothing. I spend another 5%, and the year after, I do the same. So in roughly three years, you know, on a cumulative basis, you've, you've lost close to 40 or 50% of your endowment. And certainly, it's buying power, which is very, very tough to come back from. So all the decision might be intuitive. It's just the wrong one. And, you know, I would really, you know, we really work very hard with our clients to make sure that they keep their eye on the ball. The other thing is, the other mistake that, uh, that these investment committees oftentimes make is that they will tie their spending almost directly on a, on, a, on a yearly basis to how the foundation has done in a given year. In other words, if I, I'm going to spend 5%, I've made money, but if I don't make money, I'm not going to spend it. That's bad for two reasons, right? The first is, you can't run your business that way. You still have the same needs. Just because the, the endowment has maybe had a rough year, you, you still need to spend. Now, what we recommended is, you know, and many organizations have certainly adopted this idea of the smoothing policy, right? In other words, you look at, your, you look at the returns over a three- or five-year period, and we've done a great deal of research in this that says, okay, you, want to, you don't want to ignore what's going on in the, in the marketplace, but you want to keep your spending as stable as possible. And what smoothing allows you to do is to do just that. But, you know, so if I was going to advise somebody to get on the board, I would say, you know, treat it the way you would treat any other institution for a nonprofit so that, and keep in mind those three critical components of, uh, in terms of their goals. What's their time horizon? What are their cash, cash flow requirements? And what's their, uh, what's their tolerance for risk? So, so I think you bring up some points that, that are interesting in terms of goals and objectives and maybe mission statements. So, Peter, you're talking about storytelling. Both for your community foundation and the pools of capital you oversee, 
do you think about and do you encourage your constituents to think about the mission statement and how do you help them do that? You mean the mission statement of, of the asset for them or our mission statement? It or? could be both, right? I mean, you can answer it both ways. Um, we have had multiple cases when uh, funds have been created here where um, there have been a, a mission statement created basically for the fund. We had a case not too long ago with a nonprofit that um, was merging with another organization, and they were placing their assets, their endowment assets, with us as a, as a sort of a for safety reasons to make sure that they existed for the purposes originally defined, rather than for the new parents' purposes. And um, they really wanted to put a mission together so that they there was a um, something for future boards to refer to about why these funds were created in the way that they were. And I, I think um, getting a sense of why somebody did something is, is very useful, whether you're in the shoes of, uh, you know, a, a person like me in, in a couple decades or, um, or a court or um, other uh, parties that you've got, you've got a record of what people meant and why. Um, with respect to our, our mission statement, you know, we're very different than, for instance, the JCC. We're, we're a um, broadly purposed organization that is focused on benefiting the community and making it a better place. So we have the broadest of possible missions. Um, and so there's a lot you can do within that. And we have a certain set of uh, values and objectives and other things that, that also flow from that. So and I think it's important for, for people to understand what our mission is and what perspective we bring. Um, we're distinct because we have such a broad, albeit place-based, purpose. How does that connect to, Seth, this may be good for you, the investment policy statement? Because some people who are listening to this are going to sit on boards and investment committees, and they understand from Hillel or Peter or whatever organization they're working for what, what that organization is trying to achieve. But then the question is, how do you do that with the money? So can you talk about the link between that goal and then the investment policy statement? Sure. So, uh, you know, that it gets back to, again, those three essential principles that we've discussed, that you'd say, okay, so I have a mission that says, for example, um, I'd like to fund, you know, we need to spend, we want to fund the following things for this amount of money over the next period, the next 10 years, say, for argument's sake. Um, or, that you know, we are convinced that we want to be around in perpetuity uh, and that we have a tolerance of risk that says, we can't absorb more than a 15% loss in any given year as a result of the, 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 the other um, goals and objectives of, of uh, the, the pool of assets. So you kind of, you know, so the, the, the first challenge that we'd have with every nonprofit organization would be to link its asset allocation with its stated goals and objectives. And that you start with the stated goals and objectives with something we refer to as this total philanthropic value. What do you want this money to do? So, you know, we oftentimes pose that question to, you know, board members and saying, okay, so you're in charge of this $25 million. What do you want to do with it? And, you know, they look at you like you're crazy, but the idea is this. Every organization, um, the pool of assets has two, basically two fundamental goals, right? What well, possibly. One is I want to be able to give away money over the next, say, 20 years at a certain level. And the other is I want this endowment to grow to a certain amount over 20 years. So if you take the combination of the amount that you distribute and what you want, the, end, the growth that you want, you add that together, it's something we call total philanthropic value. 
every nonprofit institution in the world should be concerned about that. They are. They just don't necessarily, you know, uh, uh, describe it that way. Now they didn't. They didn't give it the fancy name you gave it. That's right. So what <laughs> happens is, so you'd say, okay, so if I'm sitting on that board, I want to know 20 years from now, how's my, what's my endowment going to look like? How much money have I given away? Will I have given away? And how much did it grow for? Now, those two goals, you'd say, okay, the $25 million endowment, if you say to the board, okay, is it your goal that over the next 20 years, the $25 million becomes 50 and that you give away 20, $25 million? The answer would be all normally yes, right? But you can't necessarily have both of those things, right? The more income you need to produce is going to mitigate them against the growth and vice versa. So the board members each have to, to collectively decide what is it we want it to look like. We'd like to give away, we want to grow to 40 million, we want to give away 20. Whatever you decide what that is, you then build an asset allocation and a spending policy and investment policy that supports that goal and objective. Unfortunately, many institutions don't do this. Uh, and it's, in our view, it's a, a critical mistake. Now, you never get this exactly right because you're, you're making estimates of what the capital markets are going to look like. Uh, but, and today it's even more challenging because of where expected returns are, right? This is the real big challenge as we see it, that for years I've been giving away 5% and I'm 60-40, 60% stock, 40% bond. And that in, because, largely because of lower expected returns in fixed income, what we think the fixed income market's going to earn, which historically bonds. has been bonds, which has been roughly around 5% in the last, you know, 30 years. That number is more like two and a half, three. Uh, so it's almost like half. And, you know, and then the equity market, we also think we'd expect that the historical rate of return, the equity market, somewhere along the lines of nine, we put it closer to seven or seven and a half. So if, you, if, if I have a 60-40 and our expected return is around five and a half for that 60-40 and I'm spending five and I have to worry about inflation, you could see over a 10-year period as a planning matter, you're going you're gonna to eat into that endowment fairly substantially. So what's the solution? Well, there really isn't. I mean, you obviously you would like to spend less if you could, but you can't. And, um, you know, some organizations are looking at this and saying, I have no choice but to increase my ex exposure to the equity market and thereby adding more volatility and risk. Because if I don't, if we don't do this, we're going to b engage in a policy that is almost assuredly going to diminish our, our buying power of our endowment. And that's not what we want to do. So this is, this is very tough. Um, I wish I had a simple answer to this dilemma. We generally are advising people to take that step up, if, if appropriate, to do one of two things. Certainly increase the exposure to equities a little bit. And if you can find non-correlated asset classes that provide other sources of income, to go to those as well. So, so outside the investment space, I, I guess one of the solutions would be you, you could raise more money. Obviously, easier said than done. I'm, I'm curious, Solel, if, if you've seen... Not, not necessarily at the JCC, but just in your conversation with colleagues and other organizations, if there's more of a push for fundraising because either investment returns might be lower or, or, or maybe support from the state or government might be lower, do you, do you think there is going to be or there has been more of a push towards fundraising? So uh, what I'm going to say also just to you know, close a thought on what Seth said, what we often look to do, uh, and again, we find it probably with the uh, older segment of our donors, is often many of them will front us an additional year so, so they don't have to start drawing on the endowment right away uh, if it doesn't hit that 4 or 5% target. But this way, if it's going to spin off four, you know, uh, 4 or 5%, we don't dip into it right away and therefore have to always play catch-up. So I just wanted to, you know, we've been very fortunate uh, with that. 
What, uh, can you just expand on that a bit? So that's when someone yeah. sets up an endowment directly with an organization. Yeah, so, so, so for instance, someone wants to set up, say, a million-dollar endowment and uh, it expects to spin off $50,000 a year just or 5%. And that might support a, a specific program yeah. or at a university like a chair Correct. or something like that? For us, for us, it could be a volunteer program in literacy that we do in the public schools. But often people will just grab that 50000 and basically you're working with 950000 <clears> to have to actually grow at more than 4%. So you keep up at that uh, percentage base of uh, a million that you started with. So we have donors that say, you know what, we'll give you the million and we'll give you another 50000 just to start this year off so you don't have to dip into that endowment. And then hopefully it kind of feeds on itself. And then in the following years when you have to pull money from it, you're not uh, starting already behind, behind the eight ball. So yep. we, we've been kind of fortunate with that. As far as what we're seeing in general, uh, you know, for philanthropy, I, I think there is an appetite, uh, especially, um, I don't normally like to go to politics, but uh, just the whole political environment, uh, we've seen a greater desire to do social responsibility and just a whole host of different things. So the question is, without taking away from... Uh, what we've established as our core uh, philanthropic areas, how can we kind of expand our base? And um, I think something that's really important when looking into the future, those who are able to really capitalize uh, on uh, digital media, uh, utilizing uh, the web online uh, in fundraising, uh, I, I think are going to be able to distinguish themselves uh, especially at the micro donor or even at the mid-level uh, donor basis. I don't think that's so much uh, at the highest level. Um, I think often for organizations like us, uh, because we are a community center, um, we like to think of ourselves uh, as uh, having more than a pool and a gym because, for instance, <laughs> we, you know, and that's what the old community center used to be known as. Uh, we have phenomenal literacy programs. We have volunteers going to the public school system, uh, and teach. We have a large special needs program. We have seniors who are galvanized helping other seniors within the community. So the question is how can we generate enough money to keep those things that don't make money? Again, because we are a hybrid model of fee-for-service and philanthropy, how can we have greater reach to those people who are not necessarily in our building every day? And digital, uh, I think, is an up-and-coming way, and there are some uh, institutions that are really leveraging that. For us, it's being able to have a very concise message to those people. Um, often micro-donors like to give to a single-focused uh, entity, maybe the American Lung Association, the Heart Association. We do so many great things. So how can we position ourselves that we can have many of those micro or medium-like donors? But I certainly think as, as we mature, um, continued philanthropy is going to be of great importance here. Do those, and I don't know what's defined as a micro-donor, but do those $25, $50, donations do they add up to become meaningful? I could imagine there'll be some listeners who sit home and say, I don't know that my $25 is going to make a difference at a, a medium or large size organization. But it, it sounds like those are actually impactful in the scope of the collective on a budget. So we, we've actually done some analysis as we continue and we're looking forward to doing a redesign and, and looking uh, into how much of an impact digital could have. Um, without mentioning their names, um, there are certain very large nonprofits that all of us here know about. Um, the one in particular that, not an exaggeration, uh, received slightly under a million um, micro donations. Wow. Like, right. Um, and I kind of said, you've got to be kidding me. You know? And they're like, no, and here are the statistics. 
and that adds up to, you know, 18 million bucks. Um, I'm not suggesting that the JCC um, is, is going to have that kind of reach, but even to make a dent in hundreds of thousands or even a million or two million and being able to really engage the community where people at that level may have thought that there wasn't a place for them at the table, to make it, them feel like their dollars count, that's like really impactful. Hey, Peter, just on the other side of the donation spectrum, are there any um, big things going on or, or hot things to be aware of in the larger or maybe planned giving space right now? Um, I think um, a big – I mean, it's been talked about many times, but a, a significant issue is generational transition. Um, we have uh, the last of the World War II and then silent generation folks and then baby boomers going through their transitions – and so there's a lot of planning going on. Um, we've doubled the number of folks who are leaving legacy commitments to the Community Foundation. And um, that is, I think, very notable. I, I think another generational thing that's of interest is it is um, really interesting to me how many single uh, childless people and uh, childless couples who've been professionals, who've uh, saved well and who have um, significant resources as well, but uh, they don't have children. And so the community is their uh, beneficiary. And that's a really interesting trend um, that um, I, I know when we talk to financial advisors, they've uh, seen it as well, and it's definitely washing up on our shore. So um, there's a significant increase in planning. Um, there's, a, there's an age transition, and all those things uh, can lead to enhanced philanthropy um, if folks are having the conversation. We have a whole other bunch of conversations with advisors around, you know, are you, what are ways to make sure that, that philanthropy and charitable giving are, are coming up in those transition conversations? Um, so we, we try to give people tools so that they can um, have productive conversations. But we've definitely seen an increase in that space in the plan giving area. Um, last question for each of you. How, how do you judge success in the industry, or, or how do you judge success from, from where you sit in the space? I'll, I'll start with Seth. How we judge success? Yeah, uh, I mean, well, I, I think that you know, from where we're called in, and uh, you know, working with the organizations, success would be you know growth of the uh, uh, growth of the in, the foundation or endowment and um, the ability to provide you know uh, liquidity when the organization needs it in a timely fashion. So if you can establish a plan says, okay, our goal is to grow this, to spend whatever it is, to spend the 3 or 5%, uh, keep pace with inflation, and most importantly, position the endowment so that it can grow over time through not only, uh, uh, you know, growth of the capital markets, but by providing the type of service that keeps donors happy uh, and addresses their interest and their concerns, which would be giving them information, helping them with planning, et cetera, et cetera, that over time, uh, you see, you, you see real growth for the, the the institution and its ability to continue its important work uh, 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 and whatever they're trying to accomplish. Hello, I'm going to guess you're going to second most of that. Yeah, I will, and I, you know, I kind of uh, always uh, enjoy bantering around with my executive director. I, I like to say uh, that it goes without saying that you know sus sustained financial viability um, is you know of course so important. Um, I mean, but for us, again, it is about, you know, building community. And so, you know, we ask ourselves with the financial aspect in mind, you know, are we meeting the needs of the community? You know, and are we really thinking about the future uh, in a very proactive way? And that does kind of dovetail back 
are we planning financially to meet those anticipated goals that we may have a few years down the road? So I, I think a lot of them are very similar in how probably all of us think. And Peter, last word is yours. Um, I think two, we think of two things. Number one, um, you know, Central New York is, is under-resourced philanthropically, and one of our key objectives is really to grow philanthropy, to amplify it by engaging people who have a passion for the area and making sure that we're a, uh, a resource for them and growing giving in, for the benefit of Central New York. So that's one. The second is making our community a better place and making sure that the grants and other initiatives, things that we're doing in the community are moving a needle and are measurable and we can show progress. Um, that is a way to build confidence in the future and um, so we're really dedicated to not only having an impact but measuring what we do to make sure that we can demonstrate it. Peter, hello, Seth. That was a great discussion. Thanks so much for joining. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. To our listeners, any questions on this or any other topic, I can be reached at mark.tenziner at bernstein.com or 212-969-6655. Make sure to check this and other episodes of Mark to Markets out on iTunes and make sure to like us on iTunes or wherever you catch this podcast. Until next time. <laughs>